This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Existential Mysteries. Love Lock Removal. Character Names. And Human Z's. Stay tuned for our Halloween episode coming up next week. part where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash murder Ken and Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> Buy Murder of Crows. <laughs> and get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The clatter of dice tossed by an uncaring hand. The thump of miniatures smoking and wandering around in Anomi. The gaze of Edith Piaf staring down from where <laughs> Peter Frampton once was. Tell us, we have entered an existential confine of the gaming heart. And rather than uh, kill Arabs for experience points or to fill out a novel, we are going to look at the depth of the existential mystery genre. It's fun to watch. Can it be made fun to play? Robin, you specialize in making things fun to play. What do you say? So this is a follow-up to a Page XX article that I wrote on this on the subject of existential mysteries and how to run them. And I thought I would uh, recapitulate that here and uh, bring Ken in on the discussion. So basically, uh, let's start by defining terms. An existential mystery is one in which you, the detective is in some way sort of confronting the very nature of the detective or investigation genre. And rather than necessarily attempting to crack just sort of a mundane case, really the mystery that they're attempting to crack is uh, laden with metaphorical weight and in fact uh, can threaten to sort of devour the detective. The uh, ultimate answer to the mystery may be that uh, no true mystery can ever be solved. It can be the mystery of existence, or it can be just sort of an interior 
mystery that either you uh, finally resolve and escape from or that you uh, d discover that there's uh, no way out of, depending on just how uh, fully Sartrean uh, you wish to be about it. And so I guess we can start by looking to some examples of what we're talking about. And the films of David Lynch, I think, are all uh, great examples of existential mysteries. You have Blue Velvet, which uh, unfolds as an investigation. It starts when the Kyle McLaughlin character finds a severed ear in the lawn and tries to figure out what's going on and is sucked into this uh, dark underbelly of a seemingly bucolic town. And in that one, at the risk of spoilers, there uh, is an exit, or is there? Uh, and then you get to his later films like Mulholland Drive or Inland Empire, where the possibility of solving the mystery becomes ever more elusive. <laughs> With There's, Inland Empire, the possibility of even finding the narrative is elusive. <laughs> exactly. The narrative starts to devour you, and the, the, you're sort of sucked into a weird uh, dream with, that operates uh, via dream logic. And I think that's a really great point, is that often... Uh, what you are investigating in a, an existential mystery begins to turn into a, a strange dream that you can never quite get out of or, or get a handle on. Godard's uh, Alphaville is our sort of a classic example of uh, an existential uh, mystery in sort of a quasi-science fiction uh, near future, which is, again, kind of a, a meta-treatment of the, the genre. Uh, what other uh, existential source material mysteries come to mind, Ken? Well, there's, there's things that are the existential mystery with sort of a bow put on the end. And I'm thinking of things like Jacob's Ladder, right? That are mysteries about the nature of perception reality, really. But you have to say at the end, oh, he was just dosed with Vietnam gas. And that's why he was that way. And so you sort of have a cheap out for people who need closure because um, uh, he didn't quite have the guts to just do a full on man falls into nothing and everything goes to hell. Uh, Primer is another example of something that begins as a really straightforward genre story the time travel movie but because the narrative is deliberately tangled and i think because they didn't have money for one final editing pass the result is kind of an existential mystery in the sense of the mystery of causality is the source of that mystery there and then from the same director of course upstream color is an existential mystery only because the individual characters all are investigating parts of the mystery but only the viewer, the god-like viewer, has the ability to pit the pieces together, but the, to the individual characters, they're sort of trapped in these weird little patterns that, that, that doom them, right? Right. And as viewer, you may or may not succeed in uh, figuring out everything that's going on. Um, other examples in film would be uh, Siesta, uh, which I think is a, it was about the same time as Jacob's Ladder, and I think somewhat more uh, interesting and uh not super hard <laughs> yes yeah yeah jacob's ladder kind of has that uh owl creek bridge problem where mm -hmm. uh you know as you suggest there's sort of a cheap out at the end that kind of uh, uh lets you off the hook so the first step to getting uh, a player or players to play an existential mystery and often it's sort of a i think even more sort of suggests uh, except in the case of upstream color as you mentioned a single protagonist, or maybe this is a thing you can do with Gumshoe one-to-one -one when we uh, get it out to you, uh, is to get buy-in from the player or players. Because a lot of players, I think, um, would just be frustrated by something, uh, A, uh, sort of philosophical or highfalutin, and also something in which you are told that it's, you know, the thing that you're going to discover is that 
reality is is just going to be yanked out from under you and your ability to ever solve a mystery is Zeno's paradox. You get It gets further away as you get closer to it. <laughs> and even if you're still in reality qua reality, right, you never go into a sort of hallucinatory dreamland, but the solution of the mystery is there is never a solution to the mystery. That is really not something a lot of people sit down to play a role-playing game, especially a genre role-playing game, to uncover, right? They... You know, even if they're going after Haster or they're going after, you know, um, Dracula, they want to know at the end, yes, we can, you know, burn that book, we can stake that Romanian, we can do whatever it takes to at least discover that our pursuit of this thing had meaning as opposed to the self-meaning of trapping us deeper inside it. And, um, you know, getting players to even sit still for a fairly lighthearted version of this, like I Heart Huckabees, would be tough. And I think one that would be a genuinely bleak, um, you know, Robert Chambers, have you seen the yellow sign, the mystery is you, you're haunting yourself type revelation. That would be, you know, people might throw things at you. Right. So you have to tell them ahead of time, this is what <laughs> we're going to do. It's about the journey, not the result. What might be an easier sell would be sort of a, a genrefied or existential mystery light in which you discover that reality is not at all what you think it was, but then you are able to somehow prosper in that new reality. And so examples of that would be a dark city or most famously the matrix. Right. And there are individual scenarios already that we've put out. I think both of us that are close to that. I want to, I don't want to say light because they're pretty serious scenarios, but I'm thinking of black chateau in shadows over Filmland, in which you know, you are trapped in this hallucinatory reality, but the hallucinatory reality, although it is larger than the universe, is also confined within the titular Black Chateau. And once you can sort of unlock the, you know, sort of foundation struts of the unfoundation, you can at least escape it, even if justifying it or explaining it never happens. And so it's sort of a halfway between the, the cheap cop out of, oh, it was all a dream, but not all the way into, and now you're trapped in, you know, the king in yellow staring out the pages of the next person to read it type ending. Right. So there, there are two stages in that sort of setup, and one of which is to determine that you are in an existential world, which is either a hallucinatory world and you're trying to get out of the hallucination or the it's real enough, but it's a false reality and there's a true reality beneath it. So that the, the first thing the characters need to discover uh, as they piece the information together is to understand the falseness of their situation, that their investigation is not a straight investigation, as it were, but has this uh, reality bending undercurrent to it. And then once you've determined that, your next thing that you're attempting to determine is where's the escape button? Where's the big red thing that I hit to uh, get out of this? And so uh, how would we uh, go about, once we've got player buy-in, what would be an example, say, of a uh, You've done the Black Chateau already, but if we're going to uh, create one now, uh, let's say that it's a uh, a modern world uh, horror game and the characters are slowly slipping into a, a false reality, what would be the... Uh, which way do we want to go, first of all? Do we want to say that the reality they start out in are apparent reality is the false reality or that they fall through a rabbit hole uh, in the ultimate existential mystery, Alice in Wonderland. That's mm -hmm. the, that's, that's exactly what happens. Um, and Wizard of Oz follows the same format, basically. Um, so is this a, a rabbit hole or is this uh, the matrix where we're in the rabbit hole and we need to get out? I prefer uh, the sort of third answer to that. It's not that you go through the rabbit hole, though you obviously have that symbolic passage through the tunnel, right? The, the psychopompic moment. But 
I, I what I prefer is the kind of existential mystery where you unfold it and discover that reality itself is larger and more and, and more meaningless than you can imagine. Because and this is because of my Lovecraftian, you know, Jones, right, and my Robert Chambersian, or at least Yellow Sign Jones before that, is I don't, you know, I don't mind a, a good Gnostic fable. Who doesn't love the Matrix? But I think that for me to find the philosophical payload worth the, you know, journey through trench coated, uh, fonts. Um, I think that I want that revelation to be the universe itself, that our real universe is also the unreal universe, right? That there's simul, that there's no, you know, um, that we're, there's not like you're going through into the, in, into the magic wall because then that, that can become Oz or Narnia or any other sort of, you know, uh, a vest pocket fantasy land really fast. But I don't like the, the, the inherent Gnosticism of a matrix. I prefer a thing where, nope, we are imposing order by sheer force of evolution on this tiny little island around us. And once we, you know, learn to see properly, oh, guess what? That was a mistake. I, I just like that Lovecraftian storyline. So that's what I would do with it if it was up to me. Now, again, um, all three of those are problematic and, my solution is the most problematic, I think, in a long-running campaign, because you really can't go anywhere from there. That sort of ends the story. There's also the idea that the escape hatch represents an inner integration, that the uh, details of the weird vest pocket universe that you either fall or just sort of by osmosis unwittingly slide into is that you are trying to solve the puzzle of yourself. And so in that case, you might ask the player to specify what is broken about the character that needs to be put together. And then you play uh, some scenes in sort of a real universe that uh, uh, show that to be the case. And uh, this is almost sort of the structure of uh, William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch, which starts as a, a realistic depiction of the horrors of heroin addiction and then uh, inexorably slides into this bizarre a world that sort of metaphorically addresses what it starts at literally addressing. And so you can start off with a series of scenes that depict that character in their real broken, irreconcilable situation. And then they uh, slip into this increasingly otherworldly reality where symbolically they're trying to integrate the pieces of themselves again. And that's, you know, again, Wizard of Oz works that way, right? Is and that, Joe versus the volcano. Yes. And that posits something that is more solvable than the, uh, existential mystery of the universe that you're just trying to put yourself together, but you're trying to put yourself together in a uh, symbolic or metaphorical way. So, right. You just have to want to go back to Kansas or Mary Meg Ryan. Right. And so, you know, each stage of that, each weird character that you uh, meet up with can then represent a part of yourself. And the way to hit the red button to escape is to, you know, defeat the uh, bad portions or the negative portions of yourself and to enable or free the uh, the sort of new version of yourself in order to then be able to wake up whole again at the uh, end of the episode. Um, so are there any other uh, sort of tips that we want to give people in terms of how do you uh, structure an individual scene? Because I think basically you could look at each scene as a having a core clue, as in gumshoe, except the core clue is an action that you need to undertake to get the next, you know, little chunk of reality to reveal itself and then move toward the how do I uh, move from this reality back into either supremacy in the newly understood true reality or uh, into, you know, returning to life 
uh, fixed and whole. Yeah, I think that my notion is that the clues, whatever thing you do, whatever the clue actions are, they should form part of a larger pattern. Because if they are truly arbitrary, if we are talking a truly existential mystery, then A, no one will ever figure them out. And B, it will just annoy the living crap out of everyone, possibly including the GM, because part of my joy as a GM is to lay out a bigger picture with my godlike view and then have the players slowly uh, surface high enough to see it and then ideally be amazed or delighted. And then the story should end pretty soon thereafter. So I think that the clues should form a recognizable pattern. And it may be a pattern that takes a while, or it may be a pattern that only you understand. It's like, I'm going to base all of these clues on the seven heavens of the Sufis. And that's what's going to happen. And maybe the players will never figure it out. And maybe the characters will only sort of archetypally begin to be able to guess how the answer works. Um, Although I think that it can also be really fun. I did a game uh, of GURPS Cabal, believe it or not, where they wound up climbing the tree of reality and they had to resolve the internal contradiction of each one of the Sephiroth before they could get onto the next one. And so the players all could, you know, look up the same, you know, Wikipedia Kabbalah article as anybody else and make sort of intelligent guesses. But only I knew the actual sort of, you know, precise pixel to to depress to solve that puzzler and again a lot of that depends on your travelogue skills as a gm if you can't make the world that they're wandering around looking for the clues interesting or challenging or weird or something then it does just become pixel bitching all right i pick up the salt shaker do i go back no all right i pick up the pepper shaker do i go back no all right i pick up the napkin holder do i go you know this kind of thing yeah you have to make sure that the things that you're interacting with are uh, you know, meaningful and uh, fraught with some sort of symbolism rather than yeah. just being... Nighthawks, the role-playing game, has a relatively limited palette. That's all I'm saying. Right. And I think you've hit on uh, one of the things about making sure that it's fun for the GM and truly uh, mysterious and labyrinthine for the players is, in fact, that the GM perhaps should not know the answer to the mystery going in, that it should be an improvised... Uh, series of encounters and spurred by something, whether it's uh, Everway cards or the uh, tarot or the I Ching, uh, that you find some sort of um, random, unpredictable element that you are uh, having to come up with as you go along so that you deprive yourself as Jim of that sort of omniscient view. I am sensing... I am sensing a that we have got we have opened up a rabbit hole of our very own in in this in this topic, and I think that we are both sort of fighting the temptation to just start doing one of our campaign riffs right now on that, and I think it might be fun for a later show, not later in the show, for us to existentially riff a mystery and maybe use tarot cards, right? And neither of us actually knows where it's going. And we sort of try and solve our way out of it. And if we can't make it fun and interesting for ourselves in 15 minutes, maybe that can at least serve as a marker for other GMs to follow in our path. Does that sound fun? Or does that sound like a recipe for dead air and fumbling with cards? That sounds not only like fun, but like the end of this segment to be continued. Dun, 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 dun. dun, dun. dun. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement.
After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for pre-order by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available for pre-order at the Pelgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. now it's time for another installment of Ask Ken and Robin, and this time Gerald Sears asks Ken and Robin, what is the true reason that French officials are removing the love locks from the Pont d'Arbre bridge in Paris? And so uh, if you're a tourist in uh, Europe, particularly on this particular bridge in Paris, you may have noticed this uh, actually relatively new trend. It just starts in the end of the uh, uh, 2000s, where uh, couples are... Uh, buying locks and then locking them to the side of the bridge as if uh, to uh, forever encase their love together in the side of a metallic object. And uh, this is uh, such a romantic thing for people to do. Sometimes they carve hearts or their initials and stuff into the the locks that uh, French officials have had to... uh, start removing these mesh panels from the uh, this particular historic uh, bridge uh, near the Eiffel Tower in order to uh, prevent uh, structural damage because the, uh, the mesh is starting to tear and there's something like 45 tons of, <clears throat> of locks. Well, if you, if everyone in Paris who feels romantic does something, that's going to, you know, dig away at that uh, bridge's structural stability. Yes, and it's not really Parisians uh, who are doing this, and it's not a French tradition. It's actually mostly tourists. Well, I'm not going to say that Parisians have some sort of lock on feeling romantic while in Paris. I was in Paris with Steve Dempsey, and I felt romantic. So imagine <laughs> how romantic I would have felt if I'd been in Paris with uh, my lovely wife. I'd have, I'd have torn a whole panel out of that bridge. Cue all the uh, the Dempsey height shipping. Yes. Now, this story cannot, as Gerald uh, suggests, just, just be this story, a mere uh, right. practical thing where French officials say, hey, you know, take a selfie, which is what they're saying. Uh, there must be some deeper significance to this. So, Ken, what can you share with us about the psychogeography of the 
Pondar Bridge. Well, the Pondar is actually, as you say, a pretty recent bridge. Um, it's was it's one of the Napoleon uh, improvements to Paris, and Napoleon the first, not even Napoleon the third, the official Napoleon of improving Paris. Uh, it got bombed a lot in both World Wars one and two, and um, it kept it keeps getting hit by boats, which I think is an interesting thing to know. I mean, I don't know if all the bridges in Paris are always hit by boats, if Parisian bridge operators are sighing and thinking of Steve Dempsey and not paying attention. I think just the way guardrails get hit by cars, that bridges get hit by boats. Hit by boats, right. I think it's significant that Julio Cortazar in Rayuela mentions that this is the bridge of La Maga, the bridge of the mage. Um, uh, and so therefore, it has been, you know, sort of love-locked, if you will, into the into the uh, cantosphere by one of the great uh, magical realists. And so if it wasn't magic before then, I think maybe that might have been what did it, was Cortazar sort of connecting it up from sort of this generalized focus for art, because it was meant to be sort of a hanging Garden of Babylon-type bridge, right, where there was sort of this open-air garden on a bridge, and you would walk through, and the iron and the plants would sort of uh, make you feel like you were suspended in a beautiful paradise, just like the hanging gardens of Babylon did, and then... Um, artists, of course, would paint things from it because like most bridges in Paris, it's very scenic and beautiful. And then that sort of nebulous cloud of art and hanging gardens and, uh, and the hanging gardens, of course, are built as a love offering. Uh, I just point that out. Um, uh, that all sort of connects up with, uh, this, uh, magical power that Cortazar puts in when he puts it in his book. And that I think is maybe what triggers the, the, the sort of the love lock response that that's an autonomic response by, um, uh, by people in the bridge. And maybe what the locks are is not, Oh, I'm just symbolizing my love on this bridge. Maybe the locks are a sense that the bridge has now actually become a, a passageway to something. And the locks are a way to shut the passage down, right? It's like, I better lock the uh, passage or else the, the, the true mage, the great, uh, Sybil Semiramis can come out of the past and crawl into the future. And so the, you see Semiramis approaching and you, your feeling is, is one of lubriciousness because that's her power, right? And you're, you're, you interpret it because of, uh, the cosmic antibodies of human culture as love for your current, uh, partner. And so you put a lockdown on the bridge and that acts as, again, an antibody response to this threat of Semiramis pouring across the bridge. And so I think what I've just determined scientifically is that, uh, Monsieur Julliard, uh, Bruno Julliard, deputy mayor for culture, the guy who's taking love locks down is actually in league with Semiramis and wants, uh, Paris to become part of her fell domain. And I'm not sure why he would want that. Uh, maybe he went across the bridge earlier before the locks started being appealed and is part of her long-term court. Or maybe he's just, uh, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants, even in assistant mayors. Well, uh, symbolically, of course, the lock is the opposite of a bridge, right? The bridge is about uh, connecting uh, one point to another and letting you cross over. And a lock is about stopping you from uh, entering an area or escaping. And just because in this instance, just sticking the mesh uh, or sticking a, a lock to the wire mesh is not uh, actually stopping you from going anywhere. It may, in fact, be a you know a big stasis event. So it could be uh, that the uh, bridge is actually the uh, the powerful uh, force of magical energy going through uh, Paris and connecting up peoples and uh, uh, connecting commercial energy to creative energy, and that the locks, although installed uh, by people thinking that they're doing something. Uh, well-meaning were in fact impeding 
that flow, right? If you're going to, if you go to a, a, a feng shui expert, that's exactly what they're going to tell you, right? Is that the, um, so perhaps the energy of, uh, of the city flowing through there had been, uh, was being siphoned away into the locks and, uh, the, uh, so two things are possible there, right? It's either that the city officials are the ones who have encouraged this phenomenon and now they've been stirring up for, uh, nearly, uh, I guess, a, uh, seven-year period, uh, which also sounds suggestive, doesn't it? Uh, they've stored up all of this additional energy from the city that should have been flowing through it, and now they can take it and do what they want with it. Or uh, that they have detected this lack of flow and that some other force was going to come along and collect all of those locks. And so now that the locks have been uh, sort of taken away and they've been replaced by First of all, by sort of temporary mural panels. And then when they're, the uh, bridge is fully restored again, there's going to be plexiglass protecting the wire mesh so that you can't then hook a lock over it. And so uh, the question then is, what are, they, what are you going to do? What are they going to do with all these locks that are uh, perhaps they're not filled with the power of the love of those couples per se? They're, in fact, uh, you know, seven years worth of uh, stolen uh, Parisian magical power. And what are you going to do when you've accumulated all, all of these? You could use them to, uh, I suppose, ensure that you continue to be elected, uh, depending on which faction it is of the uh, the government that controls them. Uh, what uh, worries would you have about these locks falling into the wrong hands? Well, I think if you've got 700,000 locks, each of which contains some portion of the magical energies of Paris and or Semiramis, I think that that is probably too many things to dump onto the, it's, it's like De Beers, right? They've got these whole warehouses full of diamonds that they can't sell because if they did, they'd crash the diamond market and then everyone would be able to buy diamonds. So they have to keep them, you know, piled up in these giant uh, rooms, uh, you know, Scrooge McDuck vaults full of diamonds. I think the same thing is true of this. These Parisian mayors have got now this, sort of vault full of magical power. And so instead of melting them down and making a giant statue of Psyche, which would contain this power in sort of this obeliskal form, like the Statue of Liberty, it would be a, a giant, mighty new power source. You want to uh, dribble them out slowly into the magical uh, ecosystem. Because if you dump them all, then everyone could either use Paris or Semiramis or love magic. Uh, and, you know, one guaranteed love spell, one guaranteed... Uh, you know, erg of Parisian psycho energy, one guaranteed jolt of Samaramis juice. That's probably more than the average person is really hooked up to handle. And, you know, the, the population of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, all getting to do it for a week is, is more than I think anyone wants to think about. So you would probably, I, I think that what they're doing is that they're then parceling them out and they're going to set themselves up as the sort of arbiters of this new black market that they've created. And they're going to be running these things out to collectors on a, on a rare, on a sort of individual basis. And then you would find the lock that, right. You know, I don't know, um, uh, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes left on, and that would be a specialer lock than the lock that just a couple of guys from Cedar Rapids, Iowa would have left. Right. Right. And so each of these locks is basically a four hour energy drink for wizards. Right. And exactly. So, and as you suggest, there are probably gradations of them that some are extraordinarily powerful. And uh, I suppose uh, there's probably an entire testing process that they have to go to. So they would have kind of uh, meters to read the residents because they don't necessarily know offhand uh, whether the any given lock is particularly numinous or not. And in the way of the French, there's undoubtedly a large secret bureaucracy 
dedicated entirely to uh, testing, measuring, uh, noting down, studying uh, all of these locks. And so they undoubtedly have an apparatus and they have to file all these reports. And then the kind of low-level ones in order to uh, fund the system are uh, sold off uh, through the magical black market. And so uh, you as a magician, if you need an extra little mana, you know, you're going into a big fight or uh, you've got to pierce into the spirit world, you'll go and you'll just uh, pick up what you hope is a kind of a generic lock, right? Because you don't want the magical life history of those people interfering with your working. So you want kind of, you probably just want you know, uh, two young lovers who are uh, very much into each other and do this and then kind of forget about it. But if there's, uh, you got to be careful because uh, some of those locks, some of them are murder locks, right? That some right. of them the or suicide locks or suicide locks where the uh, the love of those two people went horribly awry later in their lives, and you've got to, uh, you know, if they, you know, heaven uh, for fan that I suggest that European bureaucrats ever make a mistake. Yes, obviously that never happens. Yeah, that would be uh, purely in the realm of fantasy. But, it, but if it happens, as long as we're in the realm of fantasy, yes, uh, that uh, you know you could be burned by. Uh, X percent of locks and you could have a a situation where, you know, you and your other magicians all realize that you've been getting haphazard, poorly tested uh, uh, locks or even, you know, you could have counterfeit locks, right? That you've got some crummy lock that's been stuck to a bridge in uh, Moscow Moscow or or London or something that uh, uh, just carries basically a ring of mild disappointment and uh, (laughs) uh, that you've you've been cold self-hatred. Yeah, so that you might want to go through the, there might be a, a scenario in going and confronting the people who are selling the counterfeit uh, uh, love locks. Um, and that, of course, that raises the, pos- the question of whether there are other uh, similar objects that uh, also accrue certain amounts of magical power. And that seems uh, undoubtedly so, but there's, it's hard to think of another example of a case where people are uh, willingly in bulk uh, taking their magical energy and putting it in a numinous place and then allowing a, a government to harvest them all en masse. So this yes. is probably the, the richest uh, source of mana. You know, it, it far surpasses all of those stuffed animals that are left as makeshift shrines for, for people when they die. Yeah, the, 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 it makes the, the little candles at uh, Princess Diana's um, uh, funeral look like nothing to have all these locks. Uh, lying around. Right. And they're sturdy and easy, easy to transport. And, uh, uh, it doesn't seem weird if, you know, if the, uh, mundane authorities catch you with a, a lock in your pocket, that seems somewhat odd, but not crazily. So you just, mm-hmm. it's your bike lock. Right. Yeah. And I think that, I think now the question is given how brilliant a notion this is for harvesting magical energy, as we've discussed, the question is not why is Bruno Juilliard taking the locks away? It's that why aren't they encouraging them in some slightly easier on the infrastructure system, right? Given that it, this has got to be one of Paris's strategic advantages. First of all, it's the great city of love and, and passion. And so it has that going for it. And to be able to harvest it on that regular basis. I mean, Chicago, let's say Chicago is the international city of gluttony. Um, we don't, you know, go around harvesting our um, uh, our tourists' fatty deposits at some you know beautiful spot along uh, the the you know Wacker Avenue. So claims the Chicagoan. Well, <laughs> sure, they're <laughs> under said they're, too much. They're, they're an area under the streets lit only by green and inhabited by chuds, but it's not a city policy <laughs> to harvest you. It of course, happens. it's an entre- it's not a government initiative. It's no, an entrepreneurial. It's, it's America. This is America. <laughs> but anyway, my larger point, or my specific point, rather, wasn't that large, is to wonder why the French authorities have stopped it. What is the great threat 
that made them, you know, say, oh, this is a great deal. But, you know, it's like... keeps getting hit by boats. We, we yes. covered this already. Right. If, okay. if you've got all this raw magical energy uh, storing up, it's reaching a critical mass, you've got to harvest it. And uh, if you don't do that and there's a boat collision, all of a sudden, boom, all that energy, if everything just, if all those locks just go tumbling into the river, mm-hmm. who knows what can happen? It could be all sorts of disorder and perhaps even, you know, a rampant angloism, you know? Right. If all those, if all those, um, uh, if all those locks had been on in 1979 when the Pont d'Art actually fell in, you know, maybe, you know, that would have turned the sand into the sticks, right? And Charon would be showing up and who knows what uh, could be happening. Right. And you've got to remember, these are mostly left by non-French right, people. Yeah. So uh, you don't want all this non-French energy all gathering in one place. you got to take it off to a warehouse, as I say, uh, exquisitely uh, bureaucratize it and then uh, let things go in a a controlled uh, basis. L'Académie de Magie handle it just as they have since the days of the first Napoleon. Indeed. Well, I think we've uh, well explained uh, uh, this. I think everyone reading the article, you know, would have extrapolated the same thing. But, uh, you know, uh, that's what here we're here for. And uh, we can now move on to our next hut. Isaac Newton discovered in an alternate 1666. He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The chatter of IBM's selectric keys, the gurgle of good bourbon, and the scritchity scritch 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 of making revisions in paper tell us that we have entered the hut where we, the writers, write so goodly that we then tell you how to write good. And today, in the How to Write Good hut, we are discussing the perennial problem of naming your character. And in my most recent story, Paperclip, I cheated by giving my main character no name and making everyone else in it... uh either a historical character or in one case i named him after a a greek puppet so uh how do you name characters robin if you don't have a greek puppet hanging around the trick up with naming characters is to sort of tread a middle line behind the completely unmemorable 
uh, although sometimes that's what you want to establish about a character. So you, you know, you call them Tom Miller or, mm-hmm. or John Jones or something. And the uh, implausible or the uh, sort of difficult to, to eye read. And uh, we'll start by talking, I think, first about contemporary or English-speaking characters and, and move out from there. <laughs> I find that many Russian novelists name their characters in Russian, exactly which Russian. I have to say is very confusing to me. Right. In, in fact, I, I don't mean English-speaking, but contemporary names from right, yeah. wherever in the world. And there are a lot of resources that you can use now to find something that's going to sound better than something that you just make up of out of your head. And sometimes a name will come to me as uh, possibly, uh, you know, either in a flash or it'll sort of be a, an adjustment of a real world, uh, real word that I'm trying to turn into some sort of quasi metonym. A metonym is a name that evokes some sort of quality about the character. And so you might know those from Dickens or from uh, restoration drama where, you know, Mr. Fidget uh, tells you something about that character. Andrew Eggcheek. Yeah, yes, exactly. Which means uh, uh, pox, uh, you know, it's, it's Andrew Poxy, basically. Mm-hmm. If if you don't want to totally do that, but sometimes you want to have a, a name that kind of in its sound or its uh, feel on the page or its, its look kind of evokes something, that uh, what I do is I look for sources of name uh, from the time and uh, period, and then I mix and match names. I just don't want to take an entire name that someone has. I want to find a someone with a, a family name and uh, some other given name and sort of stitch them together into something that is kind of euphonious, but uh, seems like a real name that somebody would actually have, but also is somehow in some sort of subconscious way evocative. Because uh, one of the things I noticed looking at people's manuscripts is that sometimes some names just seem kind of too obviously made up that no one actually, (laughs) you know, really has that name or this is not, you know, you've described your character as Hungarian, but you've just made up a Hungarian sounding name without actually knowing how Hungarian names work. And I guess, you know, Abdul Al Al has read as an example (laughs) of that from from Lovecraft. Um, Or another thing that really sticks out is you want to avoid is something where you're just taking a too famous name from the uh, language you uh, want. So, you know, if you uh, have an Italian character and you want to call him Mr. Monteverdi, well, presumably today there are still uh, people named Monteverdi, uh, but if you know your classical music at all, you know that Claudio Monteverdi was a really uh, famous uh, composer, and that may it probably for an English speaker is the only person you know named Monteverdi. Whereas if there are a whole bunch of uh, famous people named Miller, uh, that uh, that word, although it has you know specific metonymic uh, connotations, also at the same time. Uh, doesn't remind you of any one particular person. Where again, if you're someone named uh, Cruz and not the uh, common Spanish surname Cruz, but as in uh, the made-up Tom Cruise name, uh, that, uh, you know, again, that reminds you too much of a particular person. So when I'm looking for names, I'm looking for some sort of uh, source that I can stitch and cobble from. Uh, one thing, and the internet provides all sorts of ways to do that. Uh, if you're looking for a contemporary person, for example, from uh, another uh, country, if you want to come up with the name of someone from Switzerland, uh, you can go and check Wikipedia for the uh, surnames of all of their heads of state over history, or you can look up uh, their current Olympic team names and, uh, or, uh, one way to sort of get a generalized, uh, list of kind of, uh, European names like you might use in Knights Black Agents are to, uh, 
pick up a uh any classical uh, CD that you might happen to own. And uh, if you're, uh, you know, check the personnel list on that or check the roster of any orchestra and you'll find a whole bunch of names that are not names that you would come up with, but still are sufficiently resonant and evocative and, and have that sense of uh, reality to them. Yeah. Another possibility, you can go to the IMDB full cast and credits list of a yes. movie that's made in the country that you're interested in. Or uh, so, for example, when we just saw The Martian, uh, if I were in the market for Hungarian names, oh, my goodness, <laughs> do I have plenty of names because they filmed it in Corda Studios and virtually everyone in the sort of uh, uh, crew is Hungarian. And so you've got like, I don't know, what, 500 Hungarian names right there. Bam. Uh, right. And you can still sort of create uh, metonyms by, uh, you can use Google Translate. And if you want to, uh, you know, have your uh, character named, uh, you know, Frank Castle, but in uh, Hungarian, you might find, you know, he's, he's Franciszek uh, Herseg or whatever that is. And so uh, that is an example of a metonym, but to an English speaking audience, you're not going to immediately, you might sense the resonance of that, but you're not going to uh, go, oh yeah, okay, that's, that's that obvious thing. Um, and so are there particular names or naming conventions that strike you as out of step? Are there names that you uh, tend to stumble over when you uh, read fiction? Um, when I'm reading fiction, what stumbles me is the name that doesn't make sense. Like you said, your Al Abdul Alhazred thing, where someone clearly has named their character and they don't know that, oh, that's a girl's name in Japanese or whatever. And so you'll read it and it's like, oh, it's the female character and then it'll turn out to be male. And you suspect the the author is not so much playing with gender as ignorant of Japan. And that same sort of thing is is what sort of niggles me uh in you know sort of contemporary fiction or fiction set in the in the in the regular world and then in fantasy names what annoys me is names that are just stupid so to define stupid because that's a, a, a it's sort of easy to see when you see it mm -hmm. but it's hard to work toward something toward not that being stupid both feels like that is both uh, easy to handle easy on the eye easy to to say in your head as you're reading uh but uh that feels like it might come from a real language, even though, unless you're Tolkien, you didn't devise the entire right. language to then have the nomenclature from it. I think, by and large, if there are more than uh, more than one set of doubled letters in the name, it's probably stupid. I think any apostrophes at all is probably a stupid name. <laughs> Either the same consonant repeated maybe four or five times, that's a sign, or four consonants together separated only by apostrophes or by the occasional grudging I, that can usually be a, a sign that something has gone wrong. Obviously, if you're a historical novelist, many of your Polish names will be exactly that, four consonants with a grudging I. But again, Polish doesn't sound stupid. Polish sounds Polish. And to be going to a fantasy land and suddenly discovering that everyone is Polish, well, it's it's an odd choice. Right. And and, and sometimes you sort of have worlds that are kind of uh, portmanteau. Right. Yeah. Uh, Guy Gavriel you know, K does that all the time that are right. sort of the, 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 the world that is sort of like our... Castile, but he doesn't want to, you know, really nail down the historical events. So it's sort of this pretend Castile. Right. And that suggests also that all of this advice pertains to your language, that a totally invented name, if you are uh, writing in Brazilian Portuguese, is you're going to ha probably have your own rules for what, what looks stupid to the eye <laughs> right. than those of us who are writing in English. And that if you're, uh, you know, used to a language where uh, consonants predominate as they do in uh, Polish and other Eastern European languages or uh, French, where the vowels go crazy, that, you know, 
words in which there aren't a bunch of vowels or consonants in whichever case it is will seem peculiar to you. But I think you you really hit on one of the main things is just names that don't sound or look right on the page, that you're tr- striving so hard to make them seem alien that you uh, make them seem unwieldy. Uh, there are a number of tools online that you can use to take a whole bunch of words and then create a whole bunch of random words sliced and diced from those components. And so what I will often do for fantasy names, in order to create the illusion of there being a sort of a consistency in an underlying language, is that I will generate a bunch of those, but I will, uh, wherever necessary, modify them to make them easier to handle. And so there are some things that might, uh, you know, come straight out of the randomizer being kind of awkward and weird, but if you just adjust them a little, they uh, then, uh, you know, are things that you can hear yourself saying in your mind as you read them, but at the same time, uh, don't look like they're just sort of the standard uh, list of syllables that people tend to pull out of the air for their D&D characters. Kragar and Vendor and Shubnall and the rest of that. Yes. And I think also uh, along those lines, if you read the name of your character to yourself, right, just say it out loud. Um, names exist to be said, not read. And so if the name sounds dumb or you always tumble over it in your tongue, if you can't pronounce Sesathar Messeldwill, uh, correctly two times running, then maybe change him up. Maybe give him a different name because that name in the real world is more often said, Sesathar Messeldwill, you come right in here and you pick up this mess right now than it is he is Sesathar Musseldwill, and his power is the most mighty. You know, you, you're, you've got to make sure that the name sounds like a normal name in some context, unless it's a title, you know, Darth Vader. Um, he wasn't named Darth, he was named Anakin, which is a much worse name, and you can see why he changed it. But, um, <laughs> but, but, an, but a name that is, uh, that is met- metonymic has got to also feel like someone might be named that. And in Victorian London, people had weird little names. And so naming someone, you know, Mr. Pinchface or whatever is, is not as crazy as it would be to sort of set it in your modern day story set in Rio de Janeiro or wherever. Another point to remember, though, is that your names all have to be distinguishable from one another. And as I'm working on a scenario, for example, the reason that I most often wind up changing the name of a person, say someone in 1930s LA, is because I suddenly realize that I've got another character in the same scenario whose name begins with the same letter. And so uh, a lot of my shifts are because of that, that the two names are harder to tell apart. Tell apart. Yeah, we had, we had two, uh, two NPCs named Watson in uh, the Edom Files. Uh, which again is completely realistic, right? The British Secret Service, I'm sure, has way more people named Watson in it than it would prefer to have for organizational clarity. But for a game, having two Watsons that are not, you know, each other's secret twin or the same guy in a hairpiece throws players into a, a wrong loop and you need to remove it. Even if it's totally realistic and people named Watson, you know, exist now. You can find them in the wild. Right. Um, now, you can make a thing of that by, you know, oh, young Watson and old Watson, mm-hmm. but you can only do it once. Right. The real nightmare is if you've got a a large thing, like a big novel or a uh, whole dossier full of NPCs, and they are from a constricted geographic region that has a tradition of giving only a few uh, uh, Christian names, right? Because you have to have a saint's name or there's only a few sort of socially acceptable names because you were raised in some sort of horrible dictatorship. Um my example 
here is Romania. All the Romanian names are going to wind up blending together. And hopefully that comes across as a mystery to be solved as opposed to an annoyance about Romania. But it is an annoyance about Romania if you're a creator. And I can imagine doing the same sort of, uh, the same sort of thing happening if you're writing a, a story set, say, in, in ancient China, when there's a relative paucity of, of given names uh, running around. And so you have to start indicating people as shoe the fat versus shoe the ox keeper versus shoe the archer or whatever. Right. Which was absolutely a real thing, right? In, in most yeah. cultures where there's a, a relatively restricted number of uh, names, uh, that's where you have uh, nicknames flourishing. And, uh, you know, that's uh, true for, you know, the, the Sicilian mob as well as for uh, people in China and a lot of other examples as well where, you know, that's why, you know, you've got to distinguish from all the, the, the polys. So mm -hmm. uh, this one's Polly the snake and this one's uh, uh, Polly the headcracker and so forth. Um, well, I think we've uh, named enough names in this segment and can safely move on to our final segment of this podcast. Do you have the security clearance to truly know Delta Green? It's the Rogue Counterintelligence Agency determined to tackle the dread manifestations of the Cthulhu conspiracy. This famous, or dare we say infamous, setting for Call of Cthulhu has been winning awards and rave reviews for nearly 20 years. Now being rebooted and updated as Delta Green, the role-playing game. It's a standalone game of its very own, written by Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze. It's a Kickstarter for just a few more days. Delta Green met its funding goal in only four hours, so every new dollar that comes in creates awesome new Delta Green projects. Are you a player who just wants the core rules of the game without all the GM secret stuff? Get the Agent's Handbook. Are you a GM who wants all the player stuff and tons of GM secret stuff? Stuff like tips for creating Delta Green scenarios. And running long-term campaigns. And customizing the setting and the Cthulhu mythos to keep your players guessing. Boost your pledge to upgrade your agent's handbook to the larger case officer's handbook. Do you want to play Delta Green in the 1960s using the gumshoe rules? Get The Fall of Delta Green to be written by Kenneth Height and published by Palgrain Press. And there's a sanity-demolishing array of options beyond that. Backers have unlocked bonus downloads that are free to all backers. And and bigger ones that you'll get when they're ready just by increasing your pledge. New adventures. New threats and articles about running and playing Delta Green. A short story by Adam Scott Glancy. A game moderator screen with quick start rules, demo scenario, and ready-to-play characters. Operational history, a sourcebook detailing Delta Green's timeline. And it's closing in on big new sourcebooks like... Impossible Landscapes, a campaign of scenarios facing the king in yellow. Control Group, a series of introductory scenarios. Deep State, a source book about the secret government programs that surround Delta Green. When the Kickstarter project ends, they'll send backer kit surveys to let you pick what you want to receive, so all you have to do now is pledge. Back Delta Green and face the apocalypse. The alien big cat screeching on the moors, the Gray alien enjoying some Earl Grey tea uh, on our uh, uh, settee. Tell us, we've once more entered the ill-defined, uh, mysterious 
borders of the Elliptony Hut. And this time I'm uh, inspired by a throwaway reference in a book that I've just been reading called Lone Survivors by the uh, very distinguished, well-known paleoanthropologist uh, Chris Stringer. The book in general is about uh, our latest understanding of uh, where the humans came from and uh, all of the different offshoots and, and so forth. But there's this offhand reference that he makes in talking, uh, introducing the subject of hybridization. And basically he says that uh, uh, humans and chimpanzees, of course, are not interfertile. Unless, of course, you accept the persistent rumors from the 40s and 50s of scientists in the Soviet Union or United States of uh, impregnating a female chimpanzee with uh, human sperm and then hushing up the results. And then he just moves on back to the regular, completely sciencey parts of the rest of the book. And this leads me to think, is is this something that paleoanthropologists talk about in the big bar and two at their paleoanthropologist conventions? I'm uh, sure they do. I'm sure they do. So apparently among those circles, there are uh, persistent rumors of that. And I guess the number one source of that rumor is someone who's not from the 40s or 50s, uh, but a little bit earlier is a, a gentleman named Ilya Ivanov, uh, who was very determined to make human Z's. And this definitely sounds like uh, your bailiwick, Ken. So what can you tell us about Ilya Ivanov? Well, I mean, to begin with, I can tell you that I'm a little bit hurt that you didn't run across him in Day After Ragnarok, because the humanzies are a uh, are part of the generalized uh, man-ape population of that fine, fine book available wherever fine role-playing games are sold or directly from Atomic Overmind Press. But... Moving beyond that. I'll read that as a plug and not a guilt trip. That is a plug and a guilt trip. Proceed. <laughs> I don't know that it has to be one or the other. <laughs> it always scares me when you show me your throat like that, Ken. Um, well, then you should stop uh, being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Where the hell was I? All right, humanities. The humanities of uh, my buddy and your friend, Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov are only the most Soviet of the various attempts to make humanities. The Germans, of course, under the Kaiser, tried to build humanities in the Canary Islands, and Stalin probably, or Stalin's dudes, found out about that research um, uh, and thought, well, there's no reason that we can't build super soldiers uh, with that uh, technology. And our buddy Ivanov got uh, to have a laboratory in Soviet Georgia, and he went out. Um, he was a expert in hybridization. He was building things out of zebras, and he was um, doing all kinds of other sorts of uh, hybrid, hybrid species-type um, uh, type experiments before, and they plucked him out of, I would hate to say obscurity, but they would plucked him out of the Russian Civil War anyway, and they told him, go off to Soviet Georgia, and build us a super soldier army worthy of Stalin. And indeed, he did not, because it is impossible. But he tried very, very hard and discovered that sort of the various practical uh, problems with artificial insemination of monkeys and apes involving, you know, sort of getting things to penetrate their cell membranes and other sort of various technical stuff. He did a lot of sort of real biological groundwork while also thinking that perhaps he could build a army of super apes just like Stalin wanted. There's all sorts of real 
science that you can uncover while trying to build an army of super apes. Absolutely. And um, uh, the specific method was, I believe, that there would be female, and uh, the term volunteers is thrown about in the research, but I suspect that they were as voluntary as most things in Stalin's Russia, which is to say not remotely. And uh, they would be artificially inseminated with uh, chimpanzee and other great ape uh semen or sperm and that that would have been uh, harvested from apes that were taken from Guinea and other parts of uh, West Africa. And his work sort of just plugged along until one of the purges started happening. I think the first thing is they came back and said, where are our super soldiers? And he says, well, look at all the good work we've done on cell walls. And then they went back (laughs) and uh, then they came back and said, seriously, where are the super soldiers? And he sort of started, you know, pointing and, and, um, uh, gesturing to his, uh, pipettes and beakers and such. And then they grabbed him up and, uh, arrested him for doing all manner of things. And I think that the changing Soviet opinions of evolution also may have caught him a little bit because the notions of man controlling these great forces went in and out of favor. Lysenko sort of is the next wave of the man is in charge of biology segment. Uh, I think that there was sort of a a diminution in that after the 20s, that first sort of bloom of revolutionary fervor where we can rebuild everything, that sort of year zero Paul Pot type attitude. As that dims, they start looking at things that are being funded on that basis, among them an army of ape super soldiers. And so they grab him and toss him in Kazakhstan uh, to be a veterinarian or to teach veterinary medicine. And of course, he freezes to death on a train station uh, about a year after they do that. That's in 1932. Uh, there are also... Um, American experiments with ape uh, interbreeding um, in Cuba uh, by a fellow named Yerkes, and he was a American scientist, uh, Robert Yerkes, and he was building on research that had been done in Cuba, I think over the, like, about a 40-year period that various people had come down to Cuba because that was where you would go to, to breed uh, super apes, and I think that that <laughs> is an interesting... It, it was in the tourist brochures. It, it adds an interesting... Um, uh, uh, sidelight on the Soviet decision to take over Cuba that maybe they wanted to sort of, you know, um, keep, uh, keep a, keep an option open on, on breeding a super ape army just in case. You want to lock down the, the ape facilities. All of your humanzy facilities must come under the, under the red banner. I believe that was probably their intention. So, uh, as you say, uh, in our reality, I'm undoubtedly, fortunately, it's not so easy to hybridize uh, humans and uh, chimpanzees, but in our fictional worlds, uh, we can uh, certainly have that happen. And uh, you can certainly, I guess, first of all, update the science behind that to suggest that someone could do that through gene splicing, that uh, insemination will no longer be necessary. And perhaps uh, uh, in the deck, you know, in a, in a near future, you can have uh, scientists who with a a wave of a little bit of technobabble can uh, produce those. And uh, perhaps there's a reason why the battle chimp Potemkin is so named. Uh, there might still be a, a tradition of people in Russia wanting to uh, t- to do this. But uh, let's say that we're in a uh, sort of a weird or a horror modern day. I guess the first earliest thing to do is a horror scenario where there's a uh, rampaging uh, seemingly intelligent, but also bestial creature. And the big reveal at the end of that could be that it is the uh, result of uh, hybridization experiments. That could be something that uh, sort of a, a quater mass 
uh, sort of uh, scientific weirdness investigator could uncover? What other uh, uses can you put the uh, human Z trope to? Well, I think one of them is is sort of a more uh, a genuinely horrific as opposed to sort of pulp horrific. I mean, obviously, you can present a human with uh, with ape characteristics as a terrifying creature because they are inhuman and you simply find behavior of chimpanzees uh, like, you know, murdering people that uh, that, that, that stop pro- produ- providing enough food to the tribe or other sorts of weird aggression that chimpanzees get into, although that may just be domesticated chimpanzees who have to deal with people all the time. <clears throat> but of course, a humanzee would also have to deal with people all the time and might have the same sorts of responses. But you can play those up as sort of a super killer demon uh, a serial killer demon type trope. But I think that one of the things is a lot of the experiments that Ivanov is doing, right, are, as I said, being done in Africa. And we are looking at, you know, the origin of the AIDS virus in Central Africa in the teens to the 30s. We're not exactly sure when that, you know, virus jumped from monkeys to people. But you could have a virus, a, a, a condition that uh, spreads amongst people through various uh, forms, however it is. Being bitten is probably the, the best, sort of your zombie virus, but it's not zombieism. It just sort of dehumanizes you and gives you these ape-like characteristics, uh, you know, mentally and socially more even than, than, you know, physically, although if it also makes your long muscles stronger and so you can throw, uh, a hundred, you know, 300-pound people around, that's also kind of neat. But that this virus is something that was born from these experiments, that the experiments failed. They didn't ever create a, a humanzy, but they jumped a whole bunch of viruses from these monkeys and from these uh, chimpanzees into the human populations. And so these viruses have been cooking along and breeding up. And maybe you add in another, you know, Soviet biological warfare experiment where they went back into Africa during the fifties and sixties and found sort of the descendants of Ivanov's work and brought them back and sort of accelerated the the program to develop yeah, a weaponizable... We'll just, use a, we'll just use a virus as the uh, mechanism for this gene splicing, and everything will be fine. Don't drop that uh, beaker. Oh. oh, well, good thing the wall came down, because I'm leaving. Um, yeah, and so you have that as the origin of it, and so you can sort of take this sort of ha-ha pulp thing, oh, we're breeding chimpanzees, that's hilarious, except for all the chimpanzees that were, you know raped, I guess would be the technical term for it, you know, badly molested and and mistreated. And then all the people, likewise, uh, we cast over that because it's, oh, look, it's it's monkey soldiers. How fun. But then in a world of horror, you sort of want to drill down on that human suffering and then add that as a component to this, you know, sort of revenge of the of the colonized on the colonizers. And you can have this virus either spreading in post-Soviet Russia and being a thing that Putin is desperately trying to contain with ever more gross uh, violations of civil rights, or it can be spreading to America, and uh, then we have to deal with it possibly by going into Africa, or possibly by going into you know Putin's Russia and sort of finding out if they're still trying to make this uh, this bioweapon work somewhere in some lost lab- uh, laboratory out in Kazakhstan or Georgia or North right. Georgia. And you anyway. can pull a bit of a, a switcheroo and a horror story where the creatures that are uh, suddenly arising uh, seem to be the result of the experiments when in fact are the uh, solidified uh, guilt of the people who were engaged in them and realize how incredibly inhumane they were in, in retrospect and are afraid of their results and that they uh, they then become a, uh, a thing and it sort of uh, appears to be a, a scientific way but turns out to be a magical way underneath. Yeah, there's a um, there's a, a really good, um, I think, sort of esoterists type uh, trope there where the worry about these uh, humanities and about the sort of 
bestial acts that we must co- uh, commit to survive in the b- modern bureaucratic state bring up these these tropes and sort of blend them into this sort of ape-like outer dark predator that uh that either possesses people through their blood or it just sort of shows up and uh tears the living crap out of things and that a lot of this you could even tie that in with that animal liberation movement where you go around and you bust a bunch of chimpanzees out of their cages but by doing that you're sort of also symbolically opening the gates for this um uh, animal uh entity from the outer dark to or your human animal entity from the outer dark to emerge right right and of course this is the same set of tropes that turn into the planet of the apes franchise and so if you're looking for an alternate uh origin story for your alternate version of uh you know the war between the humans and the apes you've uh uh, you've got that. Probably you want to go with the, you know, contagious virus gene splicing thing where, uh, you know, it uh, allows you to import bits of the sort of uh, zombie vampire contagion thing. And, uh, you know, if they, maybe the, you know, the apes don't win by wiping out all the humans. They win by uh, turning them all into uh, ape people as well. And, uh, you know, perhaps you could have your big capper there where, you know, once that happens, the world becomes peaceful again. Uh, you, you don't necessarily wind up with gorillas with uh, uh, Kalishnikovs after all. Yeah, the um, the interesting thing about this sort of uh, from a pulp perspective, uh, to rapidly uh, turn it all the way back around, is that the people who are not going to be making uh, humanzies, the Nazis, because Hitler believed that even hybridizing different animals was against uh, race nature. Right. That the last thing in the world he wanted was to make humanzies. He would he would never have uh, backed that. So the Kaiser is making humanzies. So you can still have German uh, man apes if you want them. But uh, the um, but, but they're all part of the resistance. Right. Yeah. They're, yeah. The humanzies are, are all part of the resistance to Hitler because he is hunting them down. And that can be sort of a, you know, that that's sort of like a um, an X-Men type story. Right. We were created by uh, callous human science and we didn't ask for this life. And now the Nazis want to kill us. And that could be sort of a fun twist on it is that the humanzies become the most human of us all. Right. And I guess Island of uh, Lost Souls is the sort of a, the template uh, for that. And, uh, you know, the weird thing is that, uh, uh, people tried to make that happen. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I guess they didn't read the end of the book. I mean, but people, people have spent an awful long time trying to make things that HG Wells turned into horror happen. I mean, whether it be, uh, humanzies or, uh, radioactive, uh, mining in Africa or, um, uh, just building a global bureaucracy to prevent war. All of those things turn out badly in Wells novels. And yet somehow, uh, people keep wanting to make it happen. Uh, well, on that, on that note, I think we have uh, successfully uh, peeled back the uh, richness of humanzies and uh, devoured the banana within and can therefore declare another podcast victoriously completed. Stuff and we once again been talked about. It's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Unlock your love for this podcast by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Stay tuned as we prepare our upcoming Patreon. Right now I'm looking into bells and also whistles. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>